Hello and welcome back to Counterintuitive, a governance podcast. I'm your host, Dr Paul Sagar, a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. And this podcast is made in association with the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Each week on this podcast, I invite a speaker to come and defend an idea that is to some degree counterintuitive. I play the role of devil's advocate or sceptical inquirer in order to see where the ideas will take us. Of course, whether you agree with me or my speakers is, in the final instance, entirely up to you. Today on Counterintuitive, I'm speaking with Dr Matt Sleet, who is Reader in Political Theory at the University of Sheffield. Matt is one of the leading scholars in the resurgent movement of political realism. He is the author of Liberal Realism, A Realist Theory of Liberal Politics, as well as numerous scholarly articles which have shaped the recent field. Today, however, Matt will be arguing that the idea of post-truth politics, which has become such a fixture of our recent political landscape, is a mistake, and why we should think rather differently about truth and truthfulness when it comes to political affairs. Matt Sleet, welcome to Counterintuitive. Thank you for having me. So in the last four or five years in particular, it's become commonplace to refer to the political age we're living in as one of post-truth especially after the 2016 Brexit referendum, the election of Donald Trump, the convulsions in the Italian political system, more and more we heard people discussing politics as though people no longer cared about the facts. They no longer cared about it being truthful, about getting the right answers. They just cared about either servicing their own prejudices or electing populists who lied to them. And, and there was a, a pervasive sense that things had really changed um, since 2016 and arguably had started before that. But I take it you want to argue that this is not correct, that at the very least the label of post-truth is somehow misleading and we need to think in different terms if we're going to get clear on what's been happening. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that's, that's right. So there are two things, I think, or two things at least that I think are uh, are unhelpful about uh, the term. The first, and maybe we won't say much about this, I, I don't know, but the first is, it became apparent to me very quickly when I started um, exploring this back in 2016, as you say, when it became the, very much the word of the moment, that those who were employing the term were doing so in deeply partisan ways. There was a, a flurry of books published 2016 to 2018, numerous op-eds, and it was clear that really these were largely people who were deeply, dis- deeply dissatisfied with the outcomes of the Brexit referendum, of the presidential election. Now, on the one hand, that's not problematic. Politics is partisan. That's not a problem. What worried me was how deeply disingenuous they were being in their partisanship. And on the one hand, um, it was being used as an exp- post-truth was being used as an explanation to why the losers lost. And it was especially as if they were accusing their opponents of, of essentially cheating, of not playing by the rules. But this left out all of the actual politics of why they lost and painted the conflict in almost cosmic terms of truth versus falsehood and deceit, as if questions of campaigns, personalities, policies, uh, deep historical trends, etc., were just of little uh, consequence. Um, and in a certain sense, I can completely understand why for many of those on the losing side, who simply just couldn't fathom such surprising victories before 2016, they would have been looking for explanations of what had happened, not in the sort of the mundane every day, but in much, at a much grander scale. But as time has moved on, I think we, we, we now know a lot more about what happened in 2016, and we are much better able to account for what happened in terms of normal politics. We don't need post-truth as an explanation. 
And indeed, I think actually in hindsight, uh, it isn't their victories that's going to look surprising uh, and which look in need of special explanation, but our surprise reaction to them. So post-truth was, is I think, a, a, an apolitical explanation of deeply political events. It was a way of trying to avoid evade politics and indeed evade I think political responsibility for, for the losses. On the other hand it also painted post-truth as, as both a vice and a particular vice of their opponents, you know, overlooking the ways in which their own favoured politics made use of such tactics. And a good example of this I think is uh, Machiko Kakatani's book uh, The Death of Truth, the Pulitzer Prize winning critic, where she absolutely rages against many of the tactics uh, of Trump, including what she calls the co-opting of language, in which she, dis which she disconnects words from their meaning and gives them new meanings. Well, I'm inclined to say that that just is part of politics and any successful political project, including of the more progressive politics that she and many others support, both has made use of those tactics themselves and we'll need to make use of those tactics again in the future. So on the one hand, I just think the, 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 whole, uh, the whole notion of post-truth is, is deeply uh, apolitical and an attempt, as I say, to, to evade the politics of what was going on, um, uh, to evade that as part of an explanation of, of, of what had happened. The other reason, main reason why I became deeply dissatisfied with post-truth politics is basically I don't think it's true. Uh, I have a really hard time accepting the thought that people don't care if their beliefs are true or not. Now, I don't want to discount entirely the possibility that there are some of us who might fall into this category, but to me, ours just does not look like a political culture in which people are insouciant about truth, the truth of their own beliefs, and maybe more importantly, the false beliefs of others. Nor is this a culture in which we are or have stopped arguing about facts, evidence, and so on. Indeed, I just think there's something downright contradictory in thinking that a political culture which has been so worried about the advent of post-truth politics can really be post-truth. So in a certain sense, I, I agree entirely with the post-truthers who think that we cannot make sense of things such as our current more pronounced or radical partisanship or the rise of populism and populist leaders, the fraying bonds and civility and so on, about considering questions of truth and, and truthfulness. Where I disagree with them is that they think contemporary politics can only be explained if politics has pretty much dropped out of the picture. Now, I'm much more inclined to think that nothing so radical has changed, but that the relationship between truth and politics or how truthfulness functions in politics is just much more complicated than we've usually considered it to be. That's fantastic and really helpful for understanding where you're coming from. Would we be able to therefore simply replace the idea of post-truth with another label? So one suggestion might be, well, look, it's not a post-truth situation. It's a post-authority situation or post-shared authority. But what's happened is that people no longer share the same sources in particular of information. Uh, they don't share the same news sources, or if they, they do, they, dis they believe in different partisan tribes that certain ones are reliable and certain others, and people no longer agree about which ones are reliable and which aren't. So for example, people on the right may hold the BBC to be left-wing and therefore not credible and not take their information from it and prefer to get their information from another news source, which people on the left view as not credible. And when they're getting different sources of information, they can't agree on what to believe. So they all believe what they believe is true. Just nobody, well, not nobody, but the traditional political alignments no longer converge on a source of authority. So is, is that what's going on here, do you think? 
yeah i think something like that is 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 right um i, I think i think that could be the result of numerous trends uh, maybe deep-seated trends in in western culture um and although i'm not on the side of those who who want to blame social media and the internet for absolutely everything i think it's, it probably is is clear that um the internet has played a big part in that in, in effectively uh enabling anybody who wishes to find an, an authority who will back up their view or who will agree with their view on the internet and, and ascribe that person epistemic authority i think i think it might even be more radical than that that people can effectively make themselves the the epistemic authority the the their their creation of beliefs uh, doesn't need external any sort of external validation so they can therefore believe what they want so i think there's i think there's an awful lot of um truth to that what i think is really interesting is if we think that something like that is right that the problem of contemporary politics isn't so much that we are post-truth but that there is a radical pluralization of epistemic authorities and that that is a problem for politics that begs the question of what we should do about it and it it um, I'm sort of queasy about this because of being some of those largely liberal inclinations. It does look like one solu obvious solution to that is that um, there should be some sort of control or some way of uh, fostering trust in particular epistemic authorities over others. A part of what might have happened here is that we have allowed there to become a plurality of different epistemic authorities and that's become in some sense corrosive. I mean some people largely people who follow uh, Hannah Arendt talk about the need for a shared sense of reality. I think that's probably something like that's probably right but I would probably put it as you say in, in some in a, something more like a shared idea of epistemic authority but that doesn't happen naturally. That doesn't come out of nowhere. That seems to me is something that has to be fostered, it has to be created. And I do wonder how far that therefore is a, is a, a, a political question. It's a political failure of some, of some sort that we don't have that, uh, that shared sense of epistemic authority, that we've allowed it at very least, this is very difficult obviously being liberal who doesn't want to say, you know, you have to believe uh, institution X and all that they say and so on, but, but the, 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 the problem there being such radical, radical um, uh, diversity of epistemic authorities becomes a problem that it looks like part of what's going to be good or healthy politics, good or healthy democratic debate maybe, might actually require um, some attempt to foster that shared sense of who the right epistemic authorities are. Thanks. Going off in something of a different direction, you said earlier that you find it hard to get your head around the idea that people you know, actively believe things they don't believe to be true. But isn't there some evidence that this may not be entirely widespread and account for everything and it's probably isolated to the American context um, but there is some evidence that the people who watch Fox News and the people who watch Donald Trump don't actually think anything that they're seeing is true they don't believe that well, not everybody who watches Fox News believes the stories being put out there but they find them amusing their entertainment that Trump's presidency trumpeted by Fox in particular, is a bit like watching WWE wrestling. Uh, you know what you're seeing isn't real. You know that the wrestlers aren't really beating each other up, 
but it doesn't matter because it's fun. And, and it's doubly funny in this case because it antagonizes the liberals and the left-wingers who you already dislike and already think are wrong about everything. So is there not something to the idea that, that at least some sections of at least one electorate may have given up caring about getting it right in this area and, and have switched into politics as a kind of entertainment? Or do you not find those, those readings of what's going on particularly plausible? Yeah, no, I think there are some people who, yeah, um, who, who perversely get fun out of this sort of politics. Um, I, I don't discount that as a, as a possibility. I, mean, I think it's, I, I still think it's hard, if that is right, to then be able to explain the vehemence that certain people, uh, in this case on the right, would have towards liberals if they just thought this was a game. I don't think that can sit easily with an account of American politics in which it has become radically polarised. You would think if people were accepting it was just a, just a game that they would become more relaxed about it, let's say, and, um, uh, and uh, not, not care too much, essentially, about who wins and, and so on and so forth, which, which interests Trump and so on and so forth. But it doesn't look like what, what is happening in politics at all. The other thing to say is that the literature and psychology uh, on, on this is sort of points in two different directions. And although this is sort of somewhat out of my area, I have been dipping my, my toe into it, so I, I wouldn't want to... Um, uh, pretend I'm more of an expert on this than, than, I, than I am. Um, but there, there is indeed some literature which does, does seem to show that those on the right are, um, how would you put it, not necessarily as true for those on the, those on the left. Right? That um, they're more willing to believe in conspiracy theories, for example. They're you know, more, more likely to be the sort of people you're, you're describing uh, who don't 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 take truth claims to be in a sense truth claims. Um, there there is some some evidence that that points in that direction, but there is also some more recent evidence that 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 shows that. And of course, if that's true, it means this is a problem largely of of the right. And there have been people, um, Simone Chambers, for example, in a, in a recent paper she published in the journal I edit, Political Studies, um, mentions this that you know, it might be that post in, insofar as post truth is a problem, it's a problem of particular part of the electorate. But, but I think there is, there's been some evidence come out recently of some other studies which show actually um, our propensity to uh, different forms of, of cognitive bias and so on and so forth are pretty evenly spread across, uh, across the political spectrum. And again, I just, I, I just, whenever something is so obviously partisan in that in that way it always sets off uh, alarm bells for me so um i'm not denying that what you say could be true i i i just don't think that could account for much of what's going on in american politics and i'd be surprised if that was um specific to a particular part of the electorate so picking up on that point i'm so also hostile to the idea that a disposition to untruthfulness tended to reside more with one part of the political spectrum than another. I distinctly remember in the 2017 British general election, many of my friends who'd been vehemently denouncing the post-truth of the Brexit campaign and of the Trump campaign were perfectly happy to knock on people's doorsteps and make them promises according to Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto, which they knew full well there was no chance of ever actually being implemented because it was all unaffordable. But that didn't matter because their side needed to win. So I, I, I myself have 
uh, I'm skeptical that um, one side of the political spectrum tends to this more than the other. But then that leads to an alternative thought is that, well, maybe there isn't anything to see here at all. Maybe 2016 was really just the story of unexpected dramatic victories for outsider causes and candidates. But politicians have always minced um, the truth when it suited them. Electorates have always turned a blind eye to things they didn't want to see. Campaigners have always been willing to get behind campaign slogans and promises that they know won't really happen, but they're getting their side elected. So presumably, though, you don't want to go that far. Presumably, you want to say there is something that's been happening more recently. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not totally sure that I, I, I do, actually. I mean, I, I, I tend to think now that almost everything that happened in 2016 and, and surrounding, surrounding events probably are, are, are pretty easily explainable according to our common understandings of politics, right? Why populist leaders are winning and so on and so forth. It doesn't seem to me to be anything that needs a stand in need of particular special explanation. I mean, the relationship between truth and politics is one of the oldest questions of, of politics it, itself. I, I, I think I just take it, take what happened in political 16 as giving us reason to revisit that question. And I think it has made us see in various ways, for reasons you've just said, for example, that I just don't think we, we quite grasp how complicated that relationship is. I think we often, at least our, our, our tradition of thinking about politics, are, sort of vacillates, I think, between thinking either that politics must be grounded in truth in some sense, that that's the relationship between truth and politics, crudely put the sort of platonic uh, way of thinking about politics, or there's a sort of more Machiavellian way of thinking about truth and politics, which the truth just has no place in politics whatsoever. It's just about, about, about power. And I think actually the relationship between truth and politics is much more complicated than that and what's happened in 2016 uh, and maybe since is just giving us cause to think much harder about about what's been uh, what their relationship is in light of what's been happening in your own work on this matter you've also wanted to push an additional set of considerations um, where you want to get into the psychology of putative commitments to truth and oneself being truthful and one thing you've wanted to suggest is that those people who proclaim themselves most ardently committed to the cause of truth in politics may actually be vulnerable more so than others to a particular problem and that is self-deception. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that because that seems very counterintuitive. Surely people who want to be truthful in politics want to be truthful about themselves and what they really believe but you, you think that it may be more complicated than that. Yeah I think maybe the way to, to, to explain this is, is, is from a somewhat personal uh, uh, and honest um, sort of uh, admission uh, really, I guess going back to your last question as well. Insofar as my interest in in, in truth and politics uh, arose in 2016, it wasn't to explain necessarily the general events that happened, but my own experience of of how I reacted to uh, what happened. Um, so I'm going to. It's going to be something of a confession uh, here, uh, and I asked the, the the listener to maybe reflect and be candid with themselves. As well. Now, the debates about Brexit were incredibly heated, and I uh, was a uh, ardent, um, committed Remainer and voted uh, Remain. And like many people, I had uh, arguments, arguments that I now, many of which I, I, I regret, uh, with friends and family who who uh, supported Leave. 
And um, in thinking at the time about why these people were uh, supporting Lee, I didn't really give much thought to the substance of their arguments. I, I tended to go for explanations along the lines of, well, they would think that they read the Daily Mail or, uh, well, they're only saying that because they're regurgitating what Rees-Mogg or um, Farage has told them. Maybe I'd sprinkle in there some, some, some xenophobia and some racism, racism or some naive nostalgia as explanation of why they believe what they do. I, I wouldn't countenance the possibility that they had thought their position through. I wouldn't countenance the idea that they had actually been truthful in the sense of sat down and tried to come to a reasoned position, looking at the evidence, looking at opposing arguments, so on and so forth, you know, checking the facts that they've been given and so on. I, I just didn't think that that could possibly be, no one could possibly do that and, and come out thinking that we should leave the, leave the EU. And then as, as, as tempers have cooled uh, in the four years since, and, I, and I, I think back at that time, what has struck me is I really find it very difficult to understand um, why I, as someone who's very, very slow to, to anger or any sort of uh, passionate position about most things politics, I'm sort of centrist dad in, in many ways, uh, I, was, I was very committed to remain, more than I think I was entitled to be. And if I think about my own beliefs, well, quite frankly, I... I never particularly enjoyed my, my uh, classes on the EU when I was an undergraduate. Um, I found them rather dull. I have, I have probably just little more than a basic understanding of what the EU does, of its various offices and institutions and the treaties and so on. Um, the benefits of EU membership were, were you know, I'd had little real sense of what they are than reeling off what I was being told by the particular politicians or papers that I, I was reading. I certainly wasn't going out looking to fact check what I'd been reading or looking for the other argument, uh, other side of the argument either. So I came to realise that actually maybe the other side were guilty of not being truthful, of not caring if their beliefs were true, of, of making sure they were being guided by the best evidence and so on and so forth. Maybe they were, I don't know. But I certainly was guilty of that. And I, what that's made me realize and think and reflect upon in a fair amount of depth over the last year or so is a possibility that we can be self-deceived as to our own truthfulness. That's to say, we can be deeply committed and in a sense sincerely committed. We're not just mouthing the words, we sincerely are committed to truthfulness and all that that requires of us, that we make sure that our beliefs are true. And yet we do not act truthfully. And I think self-deception is I think one of the best explanations of how that might be possible. As soon as I started thinking about truthfulness in those terms, that allowed me, I think, to, to answer a particular puzzle, which my, 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 what I was saying earlier sort of gives rise to, which is that if it isn't the case that truthfulness is, is in the wane in contemporary politics, and how do you explain, or at least you have to have an explanation, for why it is that many people don't act truthfully? And I think, I think the empirical literature on this does pretty much show that most of the time people aren't rational voters. Uh, they don't come to their beliefs in the way that truthfulness seems to demand. So how do you explain that? Well, I think self-deception gives you one way of thinking 
uh, and uh, explaining that. So I think there might be a, a, a fair amount of this going on out there. That we are all genuinely, or many of us are genuinely, sincerely committed to truthfulness, but we are self-deceived as to just how truthful we are, and that allows us to go around being very confident in the truth of our own beliefs, uh, while throwing around accusations to our opponents that, again, don't, don't engage with the substance of the positions, but rather just engage with what we think are the lack of truthfulness, the, the, the invalid ways in which they came to those positions, and allows you to disregard them, right? delegitimates them as, as positions uh, in, a, in ways that I think are really deeply, uh, deeply problematic. Uh, now, just to pick up on the other thing you, you, you mentioned, which is the possibility that it might be that we, we have a particular pro a propensity, maybe, to be self-deceived about truthfulness. I think something like that's probably right. Um, I think truthfulness occupies, and I think we underestimate this sometimes, but truthfulness occupies an incredibly central part of our ethical self-images, self understandings of ourselves. I think people like Nietzsche... Uh, Hannah Arendt and Bernard Williams are right when they talk about truthfulness as an ethical virtue, not least because it takes an awful lot of courage to sometimes revise one's beliefs in face of the way the world really is, to confront the way the world uh, really is. So I think they're, they're right about that. And in, in being part of ethical self-image, it's therefore something that in a sense is, is more important to us. It hurts. It's a threat to us in some way. The, uh, when that ethical self-image is challenged. We want to be truthful. It's important to us that we are truthful. And so what happens when we are challenged on that front, or even maybe when we encounter evidence that uh, runs contrary to our, to our beliefs or runs contrary to the possibility that we are being truthful, the usual familiar cognitive mechanisms kick in, which allow us, lead us and allow us to, to basically hold to the belief that we're truthful, even when, it seems quite blatant that we're not being truthful. Fantastic. So th there was a lot there. So maybe we, if we just go back and unpack it to make sure that I, I, I'm getting it 100% clear. So I take it by self-deception here. You're saying it's not just that we tend to believe things that fit our worldview. Most people are now familiar with the idea of a cognitive bias of preferring, of being drawn to believing certain interpretations of a set of social facts if those interpretations fit the facts we already believe and in particular support the kinds of policies, the kinds of politics that we already have. So, so that's one thing that could be going on here. But I take it you're saying it's not just that. It's that we tend to believe that, you know, I believe that Brexit is bad uh, because Brexit is bad um, and I have good reasons for that. But actually, if we go back and examine our reasons, we find that many, many times we don't really have the good reasons that we thought we had. We believe these things because we've always believed them or because partly because of the cognitive biases leading us to endorse things that we want to be true rather than that may be true. So is, is that what we mean by self-deception here? Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. So it's not self-deception about particular beliefs. Um, although I should say, I think sometimes... Um, when we are pushed on um, particular beliefs, our response to that might be to uh, defend our truthfulness rather than defend the substance of, of those beliefs uh, themselves. So that can sort of um, reinforce the self-deception about truthfulness. But yes, it's, it's a, it's a self-deception that, that um, we are not as truthful as we think we are. Right. Uh, that, that's absolutely right. 
what if somebody came along and said, well, okay, Matt, that, that might well be true. You know, it might well be the case that um, I don't believe uh, that Brexit is a good thing because uh, of good, well-founded epistemic reasons that I've gone away and researched. Um, it turns out that my heuristics are less reliable than that. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I have certain cognitive biases. But nonetheless, you know, when I do go away and look at the facts, I find out that I'm right. right? Um, that, that, you know, Brexit is a bad uh, for the economy and for international relations. Of course, somebody could argue this exactly the other way around. Uh, but isn't the response here saying, well, yeah, you may be correct that I'm not as truthful as I thought I was, but I'm still right. And insofar as I'm right, I might, I am effectively truthful. But, but I take it you're saying that there's something dodgy about that kind of, of way of rationalizing the way the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, it, 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 I, I might have be, I might turn out to be right about Brexit, right? <laughs> the sentence is probably too early to tell. Um, so it might turn out that when we do eventually uh, properly leave, um, it may be difficult to tell given, given what's happened since, but um, that it's going to be an absolutely economic disaster. I might be right about that. But in a certain sense, if I am right about that, it's, it's something like just pure chance that I'm, I'm right about that. Uh, and it, in a sense, it doesn't matter that I'm right about that for the question of how truthful I've been. Um, so you can absolutely be 100% right in your beliefs uh, and yet still be self-deceived about your truthfulness, about how you've come to, to those beliefs, whether you've come to those beliefs in, in the right way. Um, so I think that's absolutely a possibility and therefore not enough for someone just to come back and say, well, I was right or I am right. Yeah, that might, that might well be true. But I think even if that's true, that, that person should still reflect on the question whether they've been truthful. I mean, after all, I mean, there is, it, it, in, in, coming to, in coming to certain beliefs, uh, if, someone, if someone just puts a pin in a, in a board to come up with a belief and someone else listens to an expert, it's in a sense more likely that one person is going to be right over the other person. Um, but um, assuming that the person uh, who trusted the experts um, just hasn't um, uh, just hasn't picked that expert out of nowhere, that person's probably going to be uh, have more chance of being right. But they probably should listen to more experts as well. That that isn't enough. Just going back to something you, you also mentioned a moment ago, this idea that accusing somebody of not being truthful is itself a deeply provocative act and a political provocation. Um, and you mentioned figures like Nietzsche, and I take it this was something you were alluding to right at the start of the conversation when you talked about this still being an age of truth, because if we didn't care about truth, we wouldn't care about post-truth. Um, so, so why is it that you think that accusing somebody of not being truthful is so incendiary and it is so provocative. And you could, of course, point to some of the reaction after 2016 that, that rather than placating the situation or trying to you know, move us back to a, a situation where things were less fraught, perhaps predictably enough, calling one's opponents, you know, people who didn't care about truth um, seemed to be one of the most incendiary things you could do. And like you said, there's something particularly offensive about being accused by others of being untruthful. So, so what do you think is going on there exactly? Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you think about it, it, it just seems it just seems deeply counterintuitive, or there shouldn't be anything so so potentially offensive about the request 
even sort of the invitation about, hey, let's sit down and look at the facts together, right? Or, um, or uh, the BBC or whoever saying, actually, I'm going to fact check this speech, right? That, that shouldn't be, you wouldn't think in some sense, so, so provocative. Uh, and rather than being seen, as, being seen as sort of a kind invitation to sit down and engage in some wonderful deliberative uh, democracy with somebody, this is actually very often interpreted as, as you say, a provocation. I, and I think it's just for the, the, the reason you, 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 you said, which is because, we, because our, our sense of our own truthfulness is so integral to our self-image, uh, it threatens us. It's, it's a form of threat to our very character. Beyond that, there are clear links to uh, notions of identity uh, as well. Um, it, 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 it seems pretty clear now that truthfulness is connected to identity in really complex ways. Um, take uh, Akin and Bartel's recent book, um, um, Democracy for realists. realists. Yeah, I mean, for example, where they talk about the ways in which people aren't rational voters, they're not, not making decisions on the basis of evidence, they're largely making decisions on the basis of identity, which really seem to cut against the ideal of, ideal of truthfulness. And I think that's, and I think that's a, a problematic way of thinking about relationship between truthfulness and identity, because again, I just don't think it's the case that those people are all of a sudden going, I don't care about truthfulness, I just believe what, what we believe because we believe it. I don't think that's right. I think they believe... They have to believe in some sense that um, they're, they're joining that group, their membership of that group and, and their criteria for what truthfulness uh, means uh, is what truthfulness requires. So they are still being truthful. But nevertheless, so therefore, when you attack someone for being uh, untruthful, I think they also not just attacks their own self-image, it also attacks the, uh, the group uh, as well and the group's uh, self-identity. Um, but I do think it's in need of explanation. I don't think enough people have, have really given it enough thought. I mean, there was a one of the um, central uh, responses, or most often uh, cited sort of policy response to post-truth uh, after 2016, has been we just need to do more fact-checking, as if as if that was in some sense always going to be neutral, and that every person would be able to say, "Oh, thank you for fact-checking this. I now realise I'm wrong." and and give up their belief or even the very fact that your your speech your your favored politician or whatever is having their facts checked wouldn't be seen in itself a, 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 a provocation and indeed by the right for example evidence that the BBC is is biased um, so so yeah I think it's it's just not it's truth isn't neutral in that sense it's that it, truth is deeply political uh, facts are deeply political in that sense as well and there's, and um, they just can't get away from that so that, I suppose, leads to a larger question where somebody with perhaps a bit more of a sceptical bent might say, well, hang on, Matt Sleet, you're famously a realist in political theory and you're the guy who's supposed to care about power and um, legitimation and these, the, the way politics really operates in practice. And yet you seem to be getting hung up on this idea of truthfulness, which sounds like a kind of moral virtue. It, okay, there's a sort of consequentialist sense in which we should care about truthfulness if it leads to bad outcomes. If people not being truthful leads to poor political decisions, then, then we should care about it. But then we should only care about it for instrumental reasons, where it sounds much more like you, you've been talking here as though we should care about truthfulness sort of for its own sake or or at least not in any straightforwardly simple consequentialist way of uh, understanding its role in politics so, so why why does truthfulness matter so much well i reject the premise that i'm famously a realist uh, <laughs> um but so yeah that's a fair question so um 
I, I just think it's a it's a it's a it's a profound misunderstanding of realism, I think, or a caricature of realism, to think that it reduces all explanations of politics to power. I think it definitely urges us to take power more seriously. There may be other forms of thinking about politics um, does, but it doesn't exclude everything else from politics. It certainly does not exclude uh, moral considerations from politics. Um, Goyce, I think, uh, is, is maybe more ardent on this than, than anybody else in, in taking seriously what people actually care about. Uh, and that has to be one of the places where we start our political uh, thinking. Um, I think truthfulness just is one of the things that people care deeply about. I don't think it's one of the things we, we, we reflect upon as much as we should. Um, in many ways, I think it's a, it is a virtue, as, as Bernard Williams calls it, it genuinely is a virtue uh, of accuracy and sincerity. But it very often acts in the background of our day-to-day -day activities. It's sort of second order in many ways, underpinning the actual first order beliefs we, we do have about the world, about politics and so on and so forth. So I don't think we always give it the attention that, um, that it deserves, but it's there. Um, I think people do care about it. Uh, and I, I said at the very beginning, I just don't think you can make sense of uh, so much of contemporary politics without assuming that people do do care about it. So in that sense, I think it's, it's I mean, I wouldn't say what I'm doing is in a sense a, a, um, uh, a continuation of realist theory or anything like that, but I think it's perfectly continuous um, with at least some of its essential motivational ideas. Fantastic. Just to finish up, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned at the start of our conversation, which is that you hope perhaps we might be able to reduce some of the problems that we've been seeing in recent years by potentially enabling a conversion on more shared sources of authority. And you mentioned that, that this is slightly uncomfortable for somebody of a liberal political outlook, but I wanted to press you on that. Do you really think it's going to be possible to put this genie back in the bottle? Because personally, I find it very hard to envisage how on earth we could go about creating the collective agreement about the sources we trust, at least not on any dirigist, state-centered model of directed intention, because any attempt to direct other people to agree with us about what the correct authority is, is, as you say, going to be itself deeply political and therefore rejected by one's political opponents correctly, incidentally, as a political act. Um, so what would be the mechanism for this? Do you see a way that we could try and achieve um, a way of putting the genie back in the bottle? I, I hope it goes back in, but uh, I don't see how. Yeah, no, I'm, I am, um, as well as being sort of naturally inclined to being, uh, to being liberal, I'm also naturally inclined towards pessimism. So I, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't hold much, much hope for this. I, I, I cannot see the mechanisms for it. At least I cannot see the mechanisms for it, which can be done in a way that, that looks particularly liberal, as you, as you, as, as you say. And I, I guess the, the, the best chance for us at the moment, um, uh, reaching anything like a shared consensus on on, on, the, on the on the on the epistemic authorities will probably um, be to lead us to what we would take to be rather unpalatable epistemic authorities, right? not not the right ones, not the ones we would want people uh, to converge around. So I'm deeply pessimistic about about this possibility. Where I think there might, where I think 
there might be some possibility of of um, of forging some way forward is is and I may be only marginally more optimistic about this than 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 I am the idea of epistemic authority i think I think to go back to the question we were talking about earlier about the relationship between identity and and, and truthfulness um, I think we've we've largely abandoned truthfulness as a part of, at least truthfulness as we understand it, um, one which gives a particular epistemic authority, for example, to science, so we include climate change as a denier and so on and so forth. We've lost the sense in which that's a central part of, of any real identity. Um, I think if we can rebuild notions of identity which have truthfulness back at its heart, um, that therefore blunts i think that dichotomy that people are seeing between identity and truthfulness that you have to in a sense either choose truthfulness or you choose your identity i think that's the false dichotomy i think what would help us get around that is develop an identity which says truthfulness at its core uh maybe i have a slightly rose-tinted view of the enlightenment but that sort of post-enlightenment idea uh of of where civilization was going um sorts of commitments one has what truth means so on and so forth um something uh, a bit closer to that uh, may be the way forward but again i i have i i if, if i knew how we would do that i probably would um uh, I, well, I'll keep it to myself for the moment uh, and uh, make lots of money out of it, frankly, if it, it was a good idea. But, uh, but that, that, I think, is, 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 is one potential way forward, to, to forge an identity which, is, um, which has truthfulness at its heart. Matt, that's a really great place for us to finish up, I think. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much.